Hi everyone, this is Monday Morning 8am, a podcast from Firms Consulting that goes out every Monday morning where we distill the insights from the noise for our Firms Consulting Insider members. But we are making this available to everyone to help all of our listeners and readers. You can listen to the audio version of Monday Morning 8am by searching for Strategy Skills in any podcast app and you can get a written version with the links to any articles or other additional explanation pieces by signing up on firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo. What we've done again is we've gone in and tackled some of the biggest and most interesting articles of the last two weeks. So the first one is the myth of case studies and best practices. And before I begin, I want to point out that I'm going to be talking about Pfizer, an article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal. And I'm using the good work that Pfizer has done to contrast against how hard it is to know when good work is being done. And I'll explain this in a second. The article in the Wall Street Journal talks about the incredible drive and determination that the pharmaceutical companies were able to bring together to roll out a vaccine in less than a year. They talk about Pfizer, but they're not the only company that did it. Many pharmaceutical companies from around the world, from Russia to China to the UK, United States and so on, were successful at doing this. What the article does is it shows the difficulty that was involved in making sure that management, the CEO in this particular case, kept pushing his teams to go out and find faster ways of doing things without obviously breaking any rules or crossing any ethical gray lines. Now, the reason why this is important is because if you read this piece in the Wall Street Journal, it is very laudatory. It is very positive about what, what Pfizer has done. And of course, what Pfizer has done, along with the other pharmaceutical companies that also brought out vaccines in time, is worth celebrating. It's amazing to see what they've done, how they did it, the challenges they face and how they stepped up to it. But there's a reason why this theme is called the myth of case studies and best practices, because if you read enough of the business press, whether it's the Financial Times, whether it's the Wall Street Journal, whether it's the New York Times, whether it's Nikkei Asia, you're going to read many stories about companies that have been successful, whether it's Tesla, whether it's SpaceX, and companies that have been through some difficulties, whether it's Wells Fargo or other companies that have not just been through difficulties, but they have never survived in the first place because the difficulty took them down. And what consistent thing you see in all of these stories, both successful examples and unsuccessful examples, is that management puts a lot of pressure on employees. Pressure that can break them down. Pressure that causes difficulties, pressures that causes stress, pressure that causes employees to react in ways they did not think was possible. But there is a consistency here. There's management pressure to solve a problem that employees as yet do not know how to solve. And the expectation for management is by pushing back, telling them they want more, employees will step up to the occasion and solve the problem. But what you see is there's almost a, a binary approach starts occurring. In some companies, when management puts pressure on employees, employees respond by cutting corners because they do not believe they can do it better legally and ethically. So they cut corners, which leads to fines, problems with customers, and a tarnishing of the reputation of company, which is what happened with Wells Fargo. As one example, it happened to many companies. In other situations, 
employees step up. They say that, okay, management says we need to do this in a different way. No one's ever done it before. We're not going to cook the books. We're not going to change the data. We're not going to cut corners. We're going to figure out how to do it. We're going to rise to the occasion. The question becomes, what drives employees to make that decision in that moment to rise to the occasion or fiddle the numbers? This is why it's so hard to know what's the best practice and what's the best case study to follow. Because what you want to know at the end of the day is what are the sequence of events? What are the values and cultures? Why is it some employees under pressure do the right thing and go back and do the difficult task of reconfiguring all their work to develop a new way to solve a problem versus employees that decide, you know what, this is too much pressure. When this is eventually investigated, I'm going to tell everyone that management put too much pressure on me and I couldn't do it. And then the question becomes, when is pressure too much pressure? And it's almost a little bit of a dance whereby management needs to put pressure on employees to force them to do new and better things because that's capitalism. You have to do new and better things to stay in business. But at the same time, employees need to know if I cannot do it, maybe I shouldn't be in this company. Should I be cooking the book? Should I be breaking down? Should I be changing things just to make it look like I'm making progress? I mean, what is the end game? If you can't do it, eventually you'll be caught out. And I think that's the challenge here. And that's maybe the deep insight. We read all these great examples, but it all comes down to pressure from management and employees rising up to the challenge. And what's the ingredients that creates an environment where employees believe and actually do rise up to the challenge? I don't think it's just employees' fault when they say they were forced to cook the books. I think they shouldn't do that, obviously. But sometimes management can't put too much pressure on employees. Of course, you should resign or convince management to change direction. But I think it's from both sides. And as you, as, as you, an insider, thinks about how you use all of our content and books and videos and so on to rise to the occasion, as you take on tasks that solve mankind's most difficult problems, it's not going to be easy. You're going to be under intense pressure. And you've got one of two, well, you've got one of three options. One is you don't deliver, but you take a shortcut, which we recommend you don't do. Two, you deliver and you find new ways of doing it. Or three, maybe you, you decide this is not the role for you. You can't do it. Maybe let someone else step in and take over. But be careful of reading about great stories of companies that have done enormous things because at the end of the day, those employees were under a lot of pressure and you've got to know how they were able to rise to that pressure. The next theme I want to talk about is a piece in the Financial Times. I'm going to give you a number of analogies to make the point I want to make. If you celebrate some tradition with your family, as most people do, whether it's Thanksgiving, whether it's Diwali, whether it's Eid for different listeners around the world, let's assume it's Thanksgiving, right? On Thanksgiving Day, there are certain recipes you make, a certain food you prepare. On Diwali, you prepare certain food. On Eid, you prepare certain food. Whatever religion you are, whatever culture you are, you prepare certain food on certain important days. It is unlikely that the food you prepared this year is completely different from the food you prepared last year. It's unlikely that the food you prepared last year is completely different from the food you prepared the year before. That's because there are certain traditions you have and you know certain things taste very good. You know there's a certain dish, you like it. Even though you've eaten many other dishes, you like this dish, you're going to make this dish. 
right? Certain things are good because they are good. They are not good because they are new. Certain foods are newer, but you know they don't taste so good, so why would you eat it? So the point I'm trying to make is that newer is not always better. Think of the world of strategy consulting or strategy analysis, right? Every year there's a lot of books published on strategy. But how many of them are actually better than the books published the year before, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 6 years ago? There are certain books we always read in strategy because they are good. There are some books we read now because they are new and we hope they're going to help us understand strategy better, but they don't invariably do. So we, we read them, but then when we go back to thinking about what is the material and the content we want to use, we drift back and step back and use certain books that we know have stood the test of time. Music is the same way. There's certain music you listen to, and I'm sure the music you listen to this year is not dramatically different from the music you listened to last year and dramatically different from the music you listened to the year before that. In fact, the odds are very, very high that you're listening to the same music every year. Unless you don't know which music you like yet because you are maybe still young or you're introduced to a new genre, so you're taking time to learn it. Now, what is the point I'm making here? The point I'm making here is that we live in a world that we are taught to believe that we must always assume something published this year is best. Think of chart lists, right? Billboard Top 100 and so on for music. There are rules there. People don't know this, but there are rules that says that a song that's only been published in the last few months can appear in the Billboard Top 100, which means that if a song is very popular, even more popular than a song in the Billboard Top 100, it will not appear there. Think of lists that are done by, criti by, by critics who read and review books in major publications. It's very unlikely they're going to be reviewing the best book on a subject if it's already been reviewed. Because in their mind, no one wants to read about something that's already been published. In both cases, whether it's the Billboard Top 100 or the rules for the way a critic reviews a book, there's a barrier which says you have to be new first to appear here. And the question is, why does that rule exist? The rule exists because of the way, the way businesses have been set up and the obstacles to making everything available. You know, previously, a record store had, could only keep a fixed number of records. So the thinking was they'd keep the newest records because that was the most likely to sell. George Stock from BCG asks the question quite often, what happens when the cost of bandwidth falls to zero? Another way of saying that is what, happened when, what happens when the effort to find something is equal irrespective of the age of the product. We know the best food is not the newest food. We know the best books are not the newest books. We know the best TV shows are not the newest TV shows. But why is it we act and the entire commercial industry promotes the newest things? Because for a long time, they had to produce and promote the newest things because they couldn't make everything available to you. So they had to pick. If I can't stock everything, what am I going to stock? The oldest or the newest? But we now live in a world where due to digitization and the arrival of digitalized business economics that makes sense, you don't need to focus on the newest things. The oldest things can be easily accessed. So what if we create a business model where we didn't just promote the newest thing, but we promoted the best thing? And this has profound implications because it changes the economics of everything. 
A record or a label or a song that was recorded in 1972 may now be worth more than a song recorded this year. No one's looked at the recording contract for that song from 1972. No one knows what it's worth, but it's now worth a lot more. What that means is that the half-life of a song has completely changed. The half-life of a recipe has completely changed. The half-life of a TV program has completely changed. As new audiences today discover songs from a long time ago and appreciate it and play it, the new songs don't just compete with new songs, they compete with all songs. I have this discussion quite often with members who look at our huge video library of content on strategytraining.com. And many people tell me, well, Michael, I want to see new content. And I say, but why do you want to see new content? For the what you're trying to do, the videos that are best suited for you already exist. And then they'll tell me, well, I've watched this program already. Yes, you've watched it already, but I don't think maybe you understand all the material there. So if you've watched it, that's fantastic. But do you understand everything? Are you getting the maximum value from it? Have you implemented all of the lessons? Have you perfected it? Are you a specialist in this? And should you be watching all of the programs? No, obviously you shouldn't be watching all of the programs. You should be watching the programs you need to watch. But newer is not better. And what you've got to understand in business is what does it mean in a world where things that were, are older may actually be more valuable than things that are newer, not because they've just become more valuable over time. They've always been more valuable, but now we have a mechanism to access them just as easily as the new content. That is probably going to be one of the biggest strategy shifts ever in the next 10 to 20 years. And it's almost a land rush to stake out old content, which may now be more valuable than new content, but no one even knows it exists. And I would seriously think every company's business model to understand if your business model is predicated on the assumption that new is better, and if you exist in a business whereby there are barriers to entry for older content or older ideas to play on an even footing with new ideas, because those will fall away and you're going to be facing new competitors and maybe you can even buy them off. The third theme is most people don't have the confidence to be revolutionary. And this is based on an article that appears in, I think it's the Financial Times, about the, re about the makeover of Claridge's in London, which is one of the most prestigious hotels in the world. And what makes this article unique is because when Claridge's was going through this renovation, which is one of the most extensive renovations of any building in the world, they kept the hotel open, kept guests coming in, and nobody knew what was happening. So imagine you are the owner of this hotel and you're going out there and telling your investors that, look, we have this diabolical idea whereby we're going to renovate the entire hotel, but we're going to keep it running normally. You then have to go find an engineering and architectural and design crew and environmental permitting crew who's going to accept your plan to do this. And it's basically never been done before. You have to explain what you want, which most people wouldn't understand because you are the visionary. Then you have to make sure you get what you want. And each time you've got to deal with criticism in the press because everyone says it's never been done and therefore you can't do it. Everyone says they want to be insightful and revolutionary. The insight here is do you have the confidence to be this way, assuming you know what you are doing? Because anything that's truly unique in the world, everything that's truly insightful, everything that truly changes the world, people don't get it the first time. 
They think that, why are you the only one saying this? If it was so smart and so insightful, shouldn't everyone else get it? And shouldn't everyone else be doing it? But we know from history that new ideas no one gets. So if you want to be truly insightful, truly a creative thinker, change the world, that's all wonderful. But you also have the confidence to see through, to defend what you are doing, to be able to explain it. Because far too often what I see happening with clients, I mean, this is basically a recurring topic with every single executive coaching client I have, whereby we give them the analytic firepower to do something quite revolutionary. But what they fail to understand is that when they present this to their board, 99% of time, it's completely novel for the board to not get it and to push back. And the client has to have the confidence to see it through. But what the client is expecting is that the analysis will make it obvious and the reality is no, that's never the way it's ever worked in the history of business. So the more evolutionary you want to be, the less resistance there'll be to your ideas. The more insightful you want to be, the more resistance there'll be to your ideas. And that's what you need to balance off. That's the balancing act you need to have. You got to remember that if you want to do something truly unique in the world, it's going to come down to a seriously large amount of people's skills and influencing skills to push you through. And if you don't have those skills, you're going to end up being one of those people who you know, is retired at the age of 60 or whatever it is, saying that, you know what, I had this idea, but nobody listened to me. And now this other guy comes along 15 years later and everyone follows him, but it was my idea. But you're going to forget that having the idea is not enough. The more insightful you are, the harder it is for people to see what you are doing. The more unique you are, the harder it is for people to believe in what you are doing. You need to be able to be building up a combination, a portfolio of skills to push through an idea. You know, the Andrew program is a pretty good example of how hard it is to do that. He basically has to give up his career, go sit in another part of a building and quietly work by himself because nobody believes in what he's doing. And of course, he becomes enormously successful because he understood the point we made that you need to influence people, to support you. It's not enough to have a good idea. The fourth theme I'm reading about is one called Deep Specialization Creates Deep Value. And it's an article, I think it's Financial Times again, which looks at inside the font factory, the man who shapes the world's letters. A font factory is basically a design studio that designs the style of the letters you see published in, well, everywhere, whether it's a website, whether it's an airport and so on. And I must tell you something that we don't take fonts seriously. When you read any publication or you travel anywhere, you don't worry about the font, right? But it's very clear that depending on how the font is created, it creates a certain atmosphere that impacts you. I went to Finland once, Helsinki, and I haven't been to Finland ever. I don't think I've ever been to Finland, my first trip. And I never left the airport. I was quite astonished at how well designed that airport was but particularly the fonts in the airport. You know those fonts overhead, when you're walking in an airport, you see all the signage and language. And I was shocked at how clean the font was, but I was also shocked at how well integrated the font design, which is very spartan, very simple, but yet warm, how well integrated it is with the overall layout of the airport. It's as if someone designed the font and then designed the airport around the font. Or someone designed the airport and then built the font around the airport. But there's symmetry, there's cleanliness, it's just beautiful. And after seeing that, I fell in love with that font and I've decided to use that kind of thinking in everything we're doing. That's the impact of fonts. 
Now, why am I talking about fonts? The reason I'm talking about this article is because here was a man who, I mean, you can imagine what his career discussion was like, right? He was designing fonts. Can you imagine how many people told him there's no future in this? No one even knows what a font lab is or a foundry, as they call it. They call it a foundry because historically, before electronic designer fonts occurred on MacBooks, fonts were designed in large pressing labs whereby the designer font on stencils in steel and that build it into a press whereby it physically pressed the font onto paper. So it was very hard to build a font. I mean, if you had to design a font, you had to design it with a ruler and pencil, and then you had to test it by carving out these steel plates. It took forever. So it was so hard, it wasn't easy to iterate these things. So there's no real career here. And you can imagine this guy who built the world's most famous font foundry today digital agencies that design in MacBooks and so on. We call them foundries as a um, nod to their heritage. But his career discussion was, there's no future, so why don't you expand into designing posters? Why don't you expand into designing movie posters or designing pamphlets or birthday cards and so on? But he chose to specialize. When large foundries moved to the Mac, he stayed in fonts. When print moved to digital, he stayed in fonts. Now when we move from the Western version of how we deliver fonts to the Asian version, which is very different, he stayed in fonts and he's staying in fonts. But in the process of staying in one thing and finding ways to do it better and better, he has specialized in the middle of the T. You know the T model? The T model says you can either have a breadth of skills, which is the top horizontal part, or you can focus in one area, which is the middle. The reality is that People who do great things specialize in something. Even a generalist is specializing in something. They just have the other skills to buffer them around. But the truly amazing things we see in the world today is done by something who specializes, is done by someone who specializes in one or two things, but usually one thing. Even someone who launches two businesses, it's a specialization in one thing they can carry across to multiple businesses. So the question is, why will you not specialize and what will you specialize in? And how does a company specialize while diversifying and managing the resistance to em from employees who believe that you should be doing multiple unrelated things? There's always going to be an example of a company that does unrelated things that's doing well until it doesn't do well. There's going to be an example of a company that specializes and does well until it doesn't do well. But there are more examples of companies that have deeply specialized, stayed in business for a long time, created enormous value than companies that have been diversified conglomerates and stay that way forever. You need to think about how to specialize. If you look at the pandemic planning work we have, and that's available to Slides members, the way we go about analyzing how a company can respond to a disaster, pandemic, epidemic, doesn't happen overnight. It comes from deep specialization of risk and strategy. If we just looked at the best practices in risk, we'd come up with something fairly average. But no, we said, okay, over many, many years, we've been thinking about risk and strategy. How do you manage risk? How do you measure risk? What is risk? Is there such a thing as a good risk as a bad risk? Is there such a thing as a core risk versus a non-core risk? What about critical risk versus a non-critical risk? Which risks should be kept on your balance sheet? Which should be kept off your balance sheet? That comes from specialization. And of course, when you specialize, you give up certain things, but at the same time, you do one thing well, which means you'll be paid higher versus trying to do many things and being paid a lot less. You still make a lot of money, but your return is a little bit lower. 
So as you go into the new year, I picked these articles because they give you a lot to think about. Every decision you make today is a decision that you will see the results of in one, two, three, four years time. Those four years are going to happen. You cannot stop the clock. This is not a basketball game. Whether you are ready, whether you are not ready, whether you want to take a you know, off-ramp and have children or get married or take time away, the world moves on. The people you compete with become better. They don't stop as well. Some of them will take a timeout. They do think it's a basketball game. So ask yourself, what do you want to be good at? You can't be good at everything, right? You pick some things, you go in that direction. And then look at your last year. I mean, you know, we all start off well. We think a year is not a long time. But it's actually a long time. Look at your last year and say, what did I do? What worked? What didn't work? Was I more productive? Was I more productive last year versus the year before? Productivity being output value. All the increase in your asset values, home and so on. Increase in your income. Increase in your intangible assets, which are things you've learned. Divided by your total input costs, which is the cost to do it and the time you spent to do it. I mean, did overall, roughly, did you actually get better? And the trend should always be positive. And if it's not positive, you've got to relook at certain things. But it's a process. You'll make a lot of mistakes, you'll get better. As long as you're getting better, it doesn't, make if you, it doesn't matter if you make mistakes. But deep specialization has always been the way capitalism has worked. Companies that specialize in something solve a problem better than someone else. They make money. Then they get short-sighted and they think we can't do it any better. So let's take that money and invest in some diversified venture, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work, and they destroy capital. And as always, as you know, we have many books out. We have the Strategy Journal. We have Mavis. We have Succeeding as a Management Consultant. Firms Consulting is running a special. If you buy the book and post a review on Goodreads, and if you have time and would like to do so, post one on Amazon as well, and you submit a copy of your receipt to support at firmsconsulting.com and there is a deadline so you should do this sooner rather than later and you should write to support to find out the deadline we will give you a complimentary one month access to the accompanying video programs that go into the concepts in the book in a lot more detail write to support to understand all of the criteria but as always i hope you're enjoying this podcast series and we will see you next week monday at 8 a.m and that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.